Good morning, Northwest. And it has been, it was a glorious morning to drive up early. And um, Amy and I had brought my wife Amy with me today. I'll introduce in just a moment. But we were just reminiscing that our early years of marriage and early years of ministry involved a 70-mile drive every Sunday for three years. And uh, we seldom did it on Sunday morning. But uh, it was just a good reminder to us of uh, God's goodness. And we were able to pray for Converge Northwest Churches on the I-5 corridor all the way up from Monroe Everett to here, and there's a lot of them. And uh, I just want to tell you thank you for, uh, for being a part of Converge and uh, for actually being a vital part in both uh, your service and your generosity uh, to our district and to church planting. Um, so some of you have met me, but I haven't met you. Uh, in part because I had begun this new role. I had pastored a church called Cascade Community in Monroe. We had founded it back in 1997, led it for 23 years. And then beginning of January um, 2020, I had changed to this regional sort of a role, which I'd never thought I'd done before, I'd, I would do before. I figured I would die preaching at Cascade, another pastor would hop up, roll right into the memorial service, and that would be it. Um, but God, God had called us, and so we had stepped into this. And then what happened exactly two and a half months after I started this role? All of our churches closed. That was entertaining, because uh, we all of a sudden had to find out how do you go online, and most of our churches had very little content online and very little giving opportunity online. And, and so there was a, a, just a struggle all of a sudden. Within two, three weeks, everybody had to figure out how to do that. You guys were figuring that out, and I was scheduled to speak. Because Pastor Ryan had, had asked me uh, when, he, when he knew I was going to be taking this role, and I had said yes. And so one of the very first messages that I gave in this new role was right here into an empty room and a camera. Now, I've done this job for a little while in terms of preaching, but that was kind of weird. And so I'm so, so glad that all of us get to be in the room together. And I'm so glad. I just want to tell you thank you from my role, my uh, perspective as well. So just tell you thank you for taking care of your pastor and for allowing Pastor Ryan the opportunity to have a sabbatical. He will come back better. I'm not saying he needed to come back better. Don't hear that. Don't hear, I'm not saying you go figure it out, bro. Uh, that's not what we were saying. Uh, but I've, I've had sabbaticals, and when you get a chance to t- get away and take a breath, be reminded of your call, and be able to rest a little bit, you come back energized. And and I would encourage you, give them a little bit of space. I came back poorly three times from sabbaticals. Uh, so give him a little bit of space. Let him kind of get his feet under him. Uh, let me introduce my wife to you. Amy very seldom gets to come with me because we're still raising two young men. Uh, but Amy, can you just wave your hand? This is my wife, Amy. Um, she is by far the better part of us. And uh, we've been married 34 years. I've been pastoring for 30 five years. Uh, again, we had planted Cascade years ago in Monroe and are, are so grateful uh, to not only be able to continue to attend there, but um, our kids are all attending there too. We have six kids, four biological, and uh, three of them are married. We've got uh, four grandkids and two more that are on the way, and then we're still raising two young men who are actually men now, 13 year-old Levi, 15-year-old Isaiah. Both of them were adopted from South Korea when they were infants. And uh, so we're skipping the whole empty nest thing. I think we're going to write a book. Maybe we'll write a book on how to skip the empty nest. Um, it'll be fascinating. Nobody will want to read it, but there we go. Uh, so <laughs> uh, this picture that uh, 
that I, I have, I usually show because Amy is not with me. But um, Converge, at, as uh, some of you know, and some of you are just now going, wait a minute, we're, our church is part of Converge? Uh, basically, yes. Uh, so whether you like it or not, or know it or not, you're part of Converge. Uh, Converge used to be Swedish Baptist. So back in the mid-1800s, a bunch of Swedes got chased out of Sweden. Uh, about the same time, some other folks were being chased out of Northern Europe. They became Evangelical Free, Evangelical Covenant. Those are our cousins. But within two generations, nobody preached in Swedish anymore, and so we decided to go to the Vanilla Baptist movement, so we were called the Baptist General Conference, which just means nothing freaky in our doctrinal statement. Uh, We baptized by immersion, which you're about to do tonight. Very, very happy to hear that. Uh, Wish we could stick around. Nothing better, in, in, in my opinion, than being able to celebrate new life in Jesus Christ. And, and that, that step of baptism is just such a public way of saying, I'm with Jesus. And so those of you that are getting baptized, congratulations. Um, we are, Converge here in the Northwest is, uh, is made up of 10, or excuse me, of, of uh, five states. There are 10 districts across the U.S. in Converge. Um, we are now a movement name as of the last 25 years or so. But um, we have the small states in the U.S. We have Alaska, Montana, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. So while I spent uh, 25 years living in Monroe, trying really hard to never leave Monroe and get on I-5 or 405, ever, uh, now I'm either fully home or fully gone. And uh, a lot of it has been gone lately, and uh, glad to be able to be here with you close by. So I've had a chance to meet with lots and lots of elder boards and with pastors over the last two and a half years in this role as regional president. And it's been a crazy season. Western Washington, Western Oregon in particular. I was preaching in Boise, Idaho last weekend, and they they actually stopped me at one point and said, you know that COVID wasn't a thing in Idaho, right? I was like, right, it wasn't, but it sure was on the West Coast. It sure was. And, and, And here's what I found. Every pastor that I know has been either called a coward or a killer based on where they went with protocols. And usually both, because most pastors took somewhat of a centrist line, right? To not offend anyone and to offend everyone, because that's what happened. And, and, right, you get it. Leadership comes with um, some degree of opposition, always, and, and it should. Uh, in a church, your, your pastor is not your dictator. Your pastor is your, your leader, your servant. And so pastors are used to, to some feedback, but, but to get attacked and really stabbed in, in the back by the very people that they have led to Christ and gotten up at two in the morning to go help. And that was a rough stretch, and that's why I'm so grateful. I, I don't think that happened here. I don't, I don't know. I'm not speaking to anybody in particular. Don't, don't worry. Don't send me an email. Send it to Mark. He likes those emails. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just so grateful that you've given Pastor Ryan the opportunity to take a breath. Here's why. My predecessor had maybe 10 churches transition senior pastor in 14 years. In the last two and a half years, in Converge Northwest, we've had 25 churches go through lead pastor turnover. That's, now I'm not very good at math, but that's roughly 25% of our churches. That's a lot. It's a lot of turnover. And so I'm just so grateful that here you're caring for your pastors, your leaders, so very, very well. Well, while this has been a difficult season, and we seem to be sort of coming out of it, um, despite the circumstances, despite what has happened, what might come, we do not lose heart. Amen? 
Despite our circumstances, we do not lose heart. We stay on mission. It doesn't, what, doesn't matter what's happening politically. It doesn't matter what's happening in our culture. We do not lose heart. We stay focused on our mission. Matthew 28, Acts 1.8. We are to continue to press forward out from where we live giving the gospel of Jesus Christ and making disciples wherever it is that God has planted us. And so I just want to remind you of who Converge Northwest is because this is a part of who we are as a larger family across the region. Converge Northwest exists to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus. And we just do two things primarily. We start churches and we strengthen churches. So churches that already exist, we want them to be strong. We want them to be healthy. Churches that don't exist, we want to raise them up in communities. And so I was actually up here in Blaine two weeks ago uh, tonight for a half a day meeting two weeks ago tomorrow with a bunch of area leaders and pastoral leaders dreaming of the possibility of planting a church or even more than one in Blaine and possibly even in Linden. And, And so God is at work among us. This is who we are. We exist to start and to strengthen churches. And we will do what the church has always done when everything seems confused and when we're not sure what's going on in culture. Now, nationally, as a a movement, converges about 1,600 churches. And we had kind of stacked hands, the 10 districts, back in January of 2020. I was down in Long Beach, California, and we had kind of pooled our our dreams and our faith and said, we believe that God will plant through our movement 312 new churches by the end of 2025. And so we we had this big celebration and had this great video and, and two months later, everything shut down. And so we were wondering, how is that going to actually happen this last Tuesday and Wednesday? I asked all of the, the 10 district church planting directors to gather in Nashville. And I was given the privilege of, of leading, facilitating that conversation and basically saying, all right, where are we at? We said we want to believe God for 312 new churches, but we've had a lot of ch- cultural change and a lot of converged change that has taken place in the last two and a half years. Where are we? How do we continue to press forward? And I just want to give you this encouragement. Even in the midst of all that's happened in the last two years, God has been faithful. And we've seen six new churches begun during COVID in 2020 and 2021. And I just want to highlight two of these. The first one is uh, on the upper left over here. Sherwood, Oregon was our first church plant coming out of COVID, although they weren't really coming out of COVID. Back in, um, in the fall of 2020, they were all set to open their church in Sherwood, Oregon for the very first time. And uh, the state of Oregon said, you can't gather. You can't be in public. And so they actually figured out how to meet in their parking lot and preach through AM radio. And their opening service at Epic Church was the worship came through the AM radio. People would honk their horns to say amen. I've done a couple of those during COVID. And I'll tell you, it's a little discombobulating to... uh, to be preaching to cars and to hear honking instead of voices saying amen. That church uh, has been able, of course, to get into its building. Uh, they now have, I believe, three services. They're doing great in Sherwood. The second one I just want to highlight is right in the center on the top, uh, Eternal King Church, literally in Persian. 
um, and I don't know how to read it, but in Persian they tell me it says eternal Shah church. Now, if you're a child of the 80s, you remember in the 70s we had some issues with Iran, and there was the Shah, who is the dictator, the leader of Iran. The man there, who is the pastor, Riza Pazeshkian, uh, actually was born Muslim, grew up Muslim, and he was in Iran long, long time ago. He was the Olympic powerlifting team coach for the Iranian National Olympic group. So he went to the Olympics, he led the powerlifting team, became a follower of Jesus, had to get out. Ends up in Kenmore, Washington. You been to Kenmore? Not a lot of Persians on the ground there. But there's 10,000 within a circumference. And so they started a church in May of last year that is speaking Persian, the first Converge Northwest Church, maybe the first Converge nation side, U.S. side church that is meeting in Persian, speaking in Persian, worshiping in Persian. And during the week, he's found ways to get the message of the gospel out into Muslim countries. And so he's speaking frequently and seeing people come to know Jesus as a result. So uh, this was, I I wanted to just highlight these folks to you because uh, while we're all figuring out what we're doing with our particular churches. Sometimes we forget that there's a larger move going on around us, and we just want you to hear about this. These pandemic church planters uh, basically took a look, and when a lot of folks were stepping back, they said, you know, somebody's got to do something. Somebody's got to do something, and they stepped out in faith regardless. And so the question is, who's next? Who's next? And if you're here and you're wondering, God, You seem to be disrupting me. You seem to be bothering me. I seem to have a bit of a holy discontent about my life and career. I want to challenge you to consider perhaps ministry, vocational ministry, or co-vocational ministry might be a part of your future. Talk to your pastors. Give me a call. I'd love to have that conversation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we get a chance to be in the room all together. And uh, Lord, we're so grateful for the new life in you, in Jesus, that gets celebrated this afternoon and the baptisms that will take place. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, would you do what only your spirit can do? Would you speak to each of our hearts right where we're at? You, you know, some of us came in here because we just need to worship you. We need to hear from you. Some of us are here and not sure why. Some of us are wrestling with questions or doubts. Lord, would you speak to us right where we're at? And we just say, Father, the answer is yes. Whatever it is that you want to say to us, encourage us with, challenge us with, the answer is yes. And so as we open your scripture today, may these ancient words take on new relevance and meaning in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. When Cascade was a young church, we had grown rather quickly, and and so uh, the first ministry that we had begun with was mops, because we had a lot of little kids. And one of the the next ministries, I don't think it was the second or maybe the third, but it was probably the fourth or the fifth, that we started was an Awana program. And I kind of had a relationship with Awana where we'd have it for a while and then not have it, and this was the have it for a while moment. And, And I had been asked to speak at Awana. It was a Thursday night. And honestly, I don't mind speaking to, to a room of adults, but I get really nervous speaking to the mops group 
and even more so the kids, the Iwana kids, because you just never know what's going to happen, right? Something's going to pop off, or some kid's going to jump up, and da- or little girls are going to dance around and pull their dress over their head, and kids are going to be throwing stuff at you. You just never know what's going to happen. So I had gone, and I was very excited because I had kind of distilled the topic of worship, which they'd wanted me to talk about, down to something really simple. And so I was going to teach the kids that worship simply means that you say, God, you're worth it. God, you're worth it. That's worship. And so we had this chant going where I would say, what is worship? And they would say, God, you're worth it. We get home, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Like, I think I landed it. I think the kids connected. I think they learned. And, of course, Amy did what every mom does when the kids come home from something at church. She said, did you have a good time? Did you learn anything? And they're all a goggle, right, because, because Dad had been speaking, and, and maybe I'd highlighted them or told a story about them or something. And, and, uh, and then Amy said, so what did Dad talk about? What did you learn tonight? And one of the kids says, oh, he taught us about worship and what worship means. And, of course, Amy asked the natural question, well, what did you learn? And they said, very confidently, the oldest, about nine, ten years old at the time, she said, Dad taught us that we should say worship means that we say, God, you're worthless. All of a sudden, I realized I need to resign the next day, right? (laughs) Not the message we wanted to communicate. What has the power to change a human life? What has the power to change your life? Education? Students are heading back to college or heading off to college for the first time. Kids are going to be entering school. Our kids just started their schooling program last week. Does education have the power to change a life? Absolutely. Opens our eyes to things. Marriage. Does marriage have the power to change your life? Okay, nod your head. Yes. If if it hasn't changed your life, you're doing it wrong. All right? I I remember uh, when we were getting married, uh, we were fairly young, and and I remember thinking, this is going to be pretty easy. I mean, Amy seems easy. I seem easy. I don't think I'm very selfish. I don't think I have any issues with anger. Right? I was... And then we got married, and I realized I actually like getting my way all the time. A few years later, we, we had our, our first child. Do kids have the ability to change your life? Oh, my word. I remember, remember thinking, okay, marriage has sort of weeded out what little selfish was left. <laughs> and, I, and I found there are depths to my depravity that I had no idea existed. Our first child was colicky, so those first five months right? Uh, Amy would be in bed, and, and from 10 to 2, 3 in the morning, I'd be walking a screaming kid around an apartment in Portland, and I realized I really have a strong opinion about whether or not I should get to sleep at night, and I remember dealing with selfishness and, and frustration and sometimes even anger, and I remember having to set her down and go for a walk and come back to it and just ask for God's help. Addiction has the power to change our lives. Maybe something that you dabbled in because you felt like it was a freedom that you could have, and, and then it became chains. That, that has the power to change our lives. The, the career that you choose, a, a disease or a death of someone that is close, pain and loss, have the capacity to change our lives. But, but I want you to consider this this morning. Does experiencing the presence of God Have the power to change your life. 
Have you experienced the presence of God in a way that has altered your life? It's changed how you make choices. It's changed your priorities. It changes what you do with your calendar, your time. It changes what you do with your checkbook, your finances. Is that something worth living for? Is the pursuit of God worth it? I submit this to you. Nothing is more important for you this year heading into school and back into fall, nothing is more important in your life this year than experiencing the presence of God and pursuing the heart of God. Nothing, nothing, nothing is more important. Because when you experience the presence of God, it changes you because anytime you encounter God, he will change you. He will not leave you the same. Psalm 73 is sort of the musing, the the worship, the the prayer, the thoughts of a man who had experienced God's presence. And and so I want to just read a section of this, and I want you to listen to the, the heart of a person who was captivated by the presence of God. Psalm 73, 23. He says this, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll take me into glory. And then this phrase, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. The man who wrote that is a guy named Asaph, and I want to be more like Asaph at the end of this year than I am today. You? One of my heroes, somebody that I want to be like, and, and someday um, I'm actually putting my request in early. I'd love to live in his cul-de-sac in heaven. It's a guy that comes to us out of the depths of the Old Testament, a man named Obed-Edom. Anybody heard that name before? Obed-Edom. Actually, we, we have just a glimpse of his story in the tales of the kings in Samuel. And then... We pick up just little glimpses of his story in the genealogies that we find in Chronicles and in Kings and in Samuel. You know those flyover chapters that list what all the Levites did and which of their family members did this and which did that and where they served in the temple? Embedded in those lists are parts of the story that if we put them together like puzzle pieces actually tell us a fascinating example of what it looks like to experience the presence of God and then what comes next in a human life and in a family system. Obed had the experience of hosting, actually hosting the presence of God in his home for three months. And it changed his life. Again, this story comes to us out of the depths of the Old Testament, the genealogies, the fragments of story. But it's a powerful and engaging example that is worth us following it. Here's a little bit of background. King David had taken over from King Saul. 
And one of the first things that David did is begin to push back the enemies of Israel. And so on all sides, he was, he was fighting wars for a period of time after he became king. And finally, he had, he had shoved them back enough that there was an opportunity to kind of take a breath. And he realized that the Ark of the Covenant, you guys know what that is? We'll describe more in a minute, but suffice it to say right now, if you've seen Indiana Jones, the first one, Ark of the Covenant, all right? We'll come back and talk more about it in just a moment. But the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines years before. It had not been in Jerusalem. It was not within the control of God's people. It wasn't in the tabernacle where it was supposed to be, in the Holy of Holies, where no one would see it except the high priest. And King David said, it's time. I've pushed back the enemies of Israel, and now I'm going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And so he calls for a parade. In Monroe, we had a parade yesterday because the Evergreen State Fair started this weekend. And everybody from town kind of had their floats and their, their kids and their, their whatever their thing was. They were marching and giving out candy and all of that kind of thing. David calls for a parade, and it's 30,000 soldiers. That's a lot. Think the average Mariner game, maybe. That's a lot of folks, plus a bunch of musicians and a bunch of priests, and they start to bring the ark back from where it had been in captivity back to Jerusalem. But here's what happens. Chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. I'm just going to read the first few verses. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. David, again, brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all, and he and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name. The name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. That gives us a glimpse of what the ark looked like. It was, was this gold filigree-covered box that on the top of it had gold cherubim or angels whose wings came together in the center. And it was there that in that time and place... The presence of God dwelt. He hung out there. Verse 3, 2 Samuel 6. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Now, some of you who know the Old Testament and some of Leviticus, you know right away they were doing the right thing in the wrong way, right? They put the ark of the covenant on a new cart pulled by oxen. That's a foul on the play. There were instructions for how the ark was to be moved. That wasn't it. And so David had not bothered to read the directions. He just thought he was doing a good thing, and it didn't matter how he did it. And by the way, we get ourselves in trouble with this sometimes, don't we? We have an impulse to do the right thing, but we do it in the wrong way, and it ends up subverting what it is that God might accomplish through us. And so Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. So they're having this crazy worship service while they're doing the parade. And then suddenly, in the midst of all the noise, as they're worshiping with all their might before the Lord, with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals, 
The author goes to great lengths to tell us it was loud, it was cacophonous, it was worshipful, it was chaotic. And in the middle of all this, verse 6, when they came to the the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God God because the oxen stumbled. He's doing a good thing. He's trying to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. It's kind of rocking a little bit, and so he kind of steadies it. And here's what happens. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. And then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez, Uzzah. I think I spent a lot of my years reading this passage and thinking, that just doesn't seem fair. I mean, the dude's just trying to be helpful. All he did is reach out and touch it. But when you do the right thing in the wrong way, there are consequences to that, even though it feels not quite fair. And David, right, is watching this. And he goes from this huge celebration, this big parade, to all of a sudden, right, the screeching halt to everything. And everyone has now stopped, and they've realized something traumatic has happened, and what was a celebration is now a moment of mourning. And David just decides, forget it. So David gets frustrated, he gets angry, and he goes to where most leaders go. A lot of leaders that I know, starting with me, Self-pity is a favorite emotion. And so David immediately goes to that and says, well, fine. I don't want the Ark of the Covenant if this is how it's going to act, if this is how God is with this stuff. And so now he just wants a place to dump it off. And here he actually follows the rules. He has to leave it with a Levite, someone from the priestly line, the priestly family of Israel. No, it so happens that there's a guy named Obed-Edom who's a Levite, he's a priest, who lives adjacent to where the accident has happened. And so David decides, let's just dump it off here. We're going back to Jerusalem, and I'm not taking that thing with me. And so they bring it in. Now, can you imagine? There's 30,000 soldiers. Obed is not going to argue. Right? So they bring it in. And listen, the home back then would have been around the square footage of this platform. Not all that big. Might have even been portion of this platform they bring it in they set it down could you imagine the conversation you got to have with your kids and your grandkids don't touch it like different than don't touch the cookies don't touch it and the game of twister they had to have to kind of find their way around that thing but something happens when the ark of the covenant was brought into his home something changed for Obed and his family. And what we find is that for 90 days, the ark stays in Obed's home. And over those 90 days, with no instant messaging, no texting, no social media blasts, the news gets out all across the region. God is doing something at Obed's place. He's blessed. And we're not even told how he was blessed. It might have been financial. Uh, for, for an agrarian culture, that could have been uh, everything that they were raising. All the goats, all the sheep, they all had twins. 
Somehow, there was blessing. It might have been spiritual blessing. In fact, I would, I would say it certainly was. It might have been relational blessing. But the news of the blessing gets back to King David in Jerusalem, miles away. I want to pick up that story. 2 Samuel 6, verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And he wasn't willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Three months. Some kind of lasting blessing begins to take place in the home, in the relationships, in the business dealings. We're not sure what all it took, what all it, it looked like, but it was enough that the king hears about it. Verse 12. Now King David was told, Hey, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed Edom and everything that he has because of the ark of God. And so David, now that he's had 90 days to sort of work out his frustration with God and realize where he went wrong. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, to Jerusalem, with rejoicing. Now listen to how he does it differently this time. Verse 13, when those who were carrying, it's not on a cart anymore, they've actually gone back and read the instructions. Now they're carrying it on the shoulders of priests, on poles that have been put through the rings on the outside of the ark. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. I'm going to give us one statement in three parts. When you experience the presence of God, it changes you. When you experience the presence of God, it changes you. Again, what did it mean for Obed to have the Ark of the Covenant dropped off at his house? I'm sure the kids were so curious to look inside because if you lifted off the lid, what you would find inside is a jar of manna, that bread that would descend every morning for God's people while they were wandering 40 years in the desert before entering the promised land. You would find Aaron's fancy walking stick that at times God would use to do something miraculous, to to sprout leaves, to communicate God's presence and God's power and God's direction. Inside would be part two of the Ten Commandments because remember Moses broke the first set and God made him rewrite them And those went inside the Ark of the Covenant. And then in between are these beautiful gold cherubim, angels. And right in the center is where God promised. In that time and place, that's where his presence dwelt. The result of having God's presence in his home is that he was blessed in every way. When you experience God's presence... It changes you. And we know for sure it had an effect on his kids. 
There is no pain quite as specific as the pain of having a son or daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter who has walked away from Jesus. Some of you know that pain. Listen, I, I care about a lot of things. I care about our churches that exist. I want them to be strong. I care about the churches that don't exist. I want them to start. But there's nothing that draws me to prayer more. There's nothing that breaks our hearts as parents more than when we pray for our kids, when we watch the choices that our kids make. Maybe you know what it's like to pray for, to long for a child to come back to God or to turn to him in the first place. And we know that the presence of God in his home changed his children and his grandchildren and his great, great, great grandkids. When you experience God's presence, second part of that statement, you're, you're led to reorient your life around the presence of God. When you experience the presence of God, it changes you, and you will reorient naturally your life around God's presence. For Obed, what that meant was that he ends up being a follower of the ark. So when David shows up, we find this uh, down. Let me grab this text real quick. Uh, Verse 12. Sorry, verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrifices a bull and a fattened calf, and David wearing a linen ephod danced before the Lord with all of his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. What we don't find in this text, but what we find in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 16 to 18, verses 21 to 22, is that Obed, as the ark is about to be taken out of his home because David has shown up with another parade, another group of priests and musicians and soldiers, and he realizes the ark is about to be removed from his home, he actually says, wherever it goes, I go. He was a musician, Obed had a worship ability, a worship gift, and so he jumps in front of that parade and plays an instrument and leads the procession from his home down into Jerusalem. Because when you experience the presence of God, you will reorient, naturally, your life around the presence. You'll even move. You'll change jobs. You'll alter your priorities. You'll change your schedule. You'll change how you spend money. Because when you experience the presence of God, it will cause you to reorient your life around the presence. Once you've tasted the goodness of God, you just want to stay close. You want to be where he is. There's an addiction to that. There's a draw to it. And so let me ask you this. What what makes you change your priorities? What makes you reorient portions of your life? And when have you experienced God's presence? For Obed, it was an experience with God's presence that simply left him changed. He was never the same after the ark stayed in his home for just 90 days. His family was never the same. And I want you to see what happens next. When you experience the presence of God, you will naturally reorient your life around God's presence. And you will become a doorkeeper to the presence of God. Here's the rest of the story. This is what we pull out of the fragments 
of genealogies and lists of who did what in Old Testament Israel. And so to see what happens with Obed's clan, we find it in the genealogies of Israel in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, chapter 26. But here's what takes place. Obed leaves his home, leads the procession, bringing the ark down to Jerusalem. They put it in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And Obed gets himself assigned as a doorkeeper to the tabernacle. What is a doorkeeper's job? You usher people into the presence of God. You help them with their offering. You help them in their worship. You handle problems. You keep the place clean. You serve God by serving others. Here's what took place. 62 of the sons and grandsons of Obed-Edom followed in daddy's footsteps and became doorkeepers to the presence of God. 62. You want your kids and your grandkids to follow Jesus? You want them to know and worship the one God who exists, the one God who made heaven and earth, the one God who gave his life for us? The experience that you and I have with God as we enter into his presence, as we give our lives to him, has the capacity to change, to reorient our lives, and causes us to become doorkeepers into the presence of God. So, what's the story of Obed-Edom have to do with us? What's it have to do with us? I want to suggest this to you. The followers of Jesus Christ today have an even greater privilege than Obed did. That's why I want to hang out with him. Someday in heaven, hopefully we'll be in the same cul-de-sac. Because I want, to, I want to answer his questions when he says, what was it like? What was it like to pray, to give your life to God, to let Jesus cover your sin, and for the Holy Spirit to be given to you at that moment? Because in his time and place, you had to go to the temple, to the tabernacle. The presence of God dwelt there. Now the Holy Spirit was still active, but he wasn't being given yet until after the crucifixion of Jesus in a specific way to each person who receives Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've given him your heart and your life, you are God's temple and that God's spirit, God's presence lives in you. And the result, Ephesians 1.3 tells us that we are blessed now and in eternity with every spiritual blessing. What's worth living for? this back half of 2022. I'll tell you a few things that aren't worth living for. Financial security. If we've noticed anything in the last two and a half years, it's that it can be gone like that. Pursuit of pleasure. I think we've all been around long enough to know that if that's the way we choose to live our lives, we will experience the brokenness that follows, the entrapment, the chains that follow. Nothing is more important for you and I than experiencing the presence of God, walking with him, empowered by him, living in relationship with him. Nothing is more important. And God had become, thousands of years ago, Obed-Edom's passion, and it changed his life. And Jesus has the same capacity 
the same invitation to change ours today. When my grandpa on my father's side was a teenager, a young teen, uh, probably what we would call a preteen, he was shot in the head, and it saved his life. Grandpa was out on the farm as a young boy with all of his cousins, and they had been given the job by great-grandpa to me, their grandpa, of shooting the crows off of the corn tassels. The corn was up high, you know, the little silk tassels on the top. The crows would land there in between marauding the corn cobs. And so the boys were out there, and they, their job was to take their twenty twos and, and to shoot those crows. One of the cousins wasn't paying very good attention. He, he pulls the trigger, and the twenty-two round zips through the corn, and it goes in right above Hank Hedinga's ear. The bullet had lost velocity and so went inside the skull, but then just kind of ran around the inside and settled with a row of fragments across the back of his head and then right over his other ear. Now, he was Dutch, and so nobody noticed the difference. A few years later, Grandpa Hank and all of his classmates are graduating from high school and World War II breaks out. The president gets on the radio and says, we're, we're now declaring war. And in central Wisconsin, the town of Wausau, everybody went to the recruiting station to sign up and they went together. Now, this was back when the army was still creating units from one particular locality. They changed that in part because of stories like this. Everybody gets accepted. And then Hank steps up to the recruitment, and he's ready to sign on the dotted line. He's going to go to war. He's going to go fight for his country. He's going to... And they say, Henry, you've already been shot in the head. You can't go. And so the embarrassment and the shame as everyone else left, and he had to stay home on the farm. D-Day. That unit from central Wisconsin stormed the beaches of Normandy and they were wiped out to a man. If Grandpa hadn't been shot in the head, I wouldn't be standing in front of you today. Grandpa had a period of, of years where he got into some things he shouldn't have. And then he met a 15-year-old girl named Dawn Marceau. Dawn loved Jesus. And she said, if you want to hang out with me, you've got to take me to church. And so they went to Wausau Bible Church. Grandpa Hank gave his life to Jesus. Back in that day, if you were serious about following Jesus, there was really only one thing that you did. If you were really serious, then you went to Bible college and you became a preacher. And so Grandpa Hanks told the Lord, I, I, I think I, I'm, I'm going to go be a pastor. And he felt like the Lord said to him very specifically, not you, but your kids. And so Grandpa worked as a millwright. He, he would just uh, machine those, those huge cylinders at the center of paper rolls in the paper mills in Wisconsin. He spent an entire career at a simple job. But on the side... He faithfully served as a Sunday school teacher and as a deacon for over 60 years in Wausau Bible Church. God fulfilled the promise. Their two sons became preachers. Their two daughters married preachers. And down through the generations, the grandkids and the great-grandkids and now great-great-grandkids, there are over a dozen and a half 
who have gone into full-time ministry, church planting, missions, pastoring. Because Grandpa found, as Obed did, that when you experience the presence of God, it will reorient your life around God's presence, and then you will become, you can't help but become a doorkeeper into the presence. And, and, I, and I want you to hear this. If you're teaching Sunday school, you're a doorkeeper. Folks who are setting up for the picnic tonight, it's a doorkeeper ministry. If you usher or greet at the door, that is a doorkeeper ministry. It is vital because you're often the very first touch people have with what Jesus' life is like. It matters. Sometimes we think that some of these roles that are a little more behind the scenes have somehow a diminutive effect. That's not true. When you have experienced the presence of God, it reorients your life, and you can't help but become a doorkeeper in small ways and in big ways. That's what I want for my life in increasing measure this year. And I think it's what you want as well. Let's pray together. Just between your heart and the heart of God for a moment. Would you just take the silence and the sacredness of this minute and just whisper a prayer of gratitude? If you already know Jesus, would you simply tell him thank you for your salvation? If you have not yet given Jesus your life, what's keeping you from it? Northwest is a good place to have your questions answered and to seek him. Would you just whisper a prayer of thanks as well in this moment and say, thank you, God, for the doorkeepers who helped me to find Jesus. And then last, who in your life right now doesn't know Jesus, that God might use you to help find the door, to be a doorkeeper. If a name or a face flashes in your mind, receive that as from the Holy Spirit. Would you pray for them? Because God will bring you opportunities to give an invitation, to ask real questions, to listen, to pray for. Heavenly Father, thank you for this example out of the depths of the Old Testament of what happened in a man in a family's life because of an encounter with you. Jesus, may we follow you in the same way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.